Hello, this is Paula Olita Roy, educator and poet, and you are at the point of learning with my friend Peter Horn. I hired Peter to teach English at Westfield High School in New Jersey in 1997. A few months later, Dwayne Lacey became my student in AP English Literature and Composition. I'm so proud of Dwayne, now a poet and professor of philosophy at the American University of Central Asia in Kyrgyzstan. Although I will be interested to hear what Peter and Duane discuss, I am also eager to hear from Peter's other guest, Fadial, a young Afghan woman, a graduate student who was born under Taliban rule and now faces a return to it. Today's show, Dwayne Lacey, a philosophy professor who has taught in Muslim-majority countries since 2008. For myself, I needed to see up close, firsthand, up and personal. I needed to understand what an Islamic culture really meant. I needed to hear the call to prayer, not in a movie, but like outside my window. We discuss what drew him to philosophy and poetry and his experience in the United Arab Emirates and Kyrgyzstan. One thing is the value of the guest, right? The value of the stranger, deep-seated in a lot of the cultures that I've had the opportunity and fortune to to, uh, experience. And it is this idea that, oh, you're... You're a guest here, which means we have to give you food. We have to be nice to you. Like it's like, compare that to New York. (laughs) It's very different. (laughs) I also speak with Farial Haideri, who is intently following news from her home country of Afghanistan. Well, I wake up every day with um looking at my social medias and looking all those women in the street protesting and thinking if I was in Afghanistan, I would have done the same thing. Having earned bachelor's and master's degrees, Farial was planning to return home, but now she can't. It's not, a, it's not an easy journey for any Afghan women to go to school from, from the beginning, like from going to school to university. And then now they're jobless, they cannot work, they cannot do anything. So like, what was all those education for then? It was for nothing. All that and much more on today's special show, Report from Central Asia. Dwayne Lacey is a professor of philosophy at the American University of Central Asia in Bishkek, Kyrgyzstan. With interests ranging from ancient Greek philosophy and mathematics to the philosophy of science, Dwayne's first college appointment was at St. John's College in Maryland, but he quickly set his sights east, 
working for a time at the former Soviet Republic of Georgia before serving as a professor at the United Arab Emirates University in Abu Dhabi for five years. Since 2013, he has taught philosophy at the American University of Central Asia, about 650 miles from Kabul, Afghanistan. I note this because, after Kyrgyz students, Afghan students comprise the next largest demographic group at AUCA. And when the chaotic U.S. withdrawal began in August, Duane became the unofficial liaison between AUCA and the Afghan students whose safety was suddenly compromised. Although this work kept him on edge and underslept for weeks, he not only agreed to Zoom with me in late August, but also introduced me to a former student of his, Fadial Haideri, highlights from whose interview make up the second two-thirds of this special episode. Although Duane was never my student, he was a high school senior during my first year of teaching, and I recall fondly many hours of conversation with him in the English Resource Center, where I was on duty eighth period every day. I'm pretty sure he had no scheduled classes then, but looking back, I don't know. I do know that Dwayne Lacey was one of the most brilliant students I met in my nearly two decades at Westfield High School, and it has been a profound experience to reconnect with him recently. Facebook, you're still good for something. While we were catching up last month, Dwayne said that philosophy and poetry saved his life in high school. Early in his remarks, he pays tribute to a kind, smart, and influential English teacher named Kate Strauss. So for me, poetry was first. Uh, and it was mainly because I had, you know, the, the, the wonderful Kate Strauss. We had a, a writing assignment. I wrote this poem and just the way, like, there was, I don't know, there was, the, the way she reacted to it kind of caught me off guard. She, she was encouraging. And I, you know, Westfield, I, I was lucky. I mean, I was so lucky. All, all of the circumstances of why I moved when I was 15 from New Hampshire with my parents to Westfield, New Jersey, all of those reasons are horrible. It was a, it, it was a terrible moment in my family's life. But I was lucky to, to end up in Westfield. The teachers I were used to would, uh, um, in Manchester, New Hampshire, might hit you. If you made them angry, I'm not joking, you know, like they certainly weren't polite and encouraging was like not in their vocabulary. So, so anyway, so yeah, so I started getting into poetry, but I remember I'm the only reason I got into it because was because someone said, Hey, this was really good. And I was like, teachers do this. <laughs> like teachers actually say good job. Anyway, so I go to this used bookstore. I'm just I'm looking at the poetry books, and then I sort of wandered into a, a small philosophy section. And yeah, I guess I was around 15 years old, 16 maybe. 
And on the bookshelf was uh, this book called What is a Thing? Question mark by Martin Heidegger. And I looked at the title and I just thought it was the dumbest title ever. I, I was like, how could you have a whole book called <laughs> What is a Thing? Like, I'm looking at it, I'm like, come on, What is a Thing? Really? And there's a whole book? So I bought it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I had to. So I took it home, five bucks, you know? And it's not really advisable on your first, you know, foray into, into philosophy. You know, Carl Jasper said Heidegger is a dangerous thinker because he will hypnotize you. So maybe it, just by chance the, you know the first real philosophy book that i picked up was a hypnotic set of lectures by martin heidegger but he you know he basically because i i picked up the book i'm like all right what is a thing i mean come on you know like and then i start reading it i'm like shit what is it like you, he starts talking about a piece of chalk and he's like what is this piece of chalk when I break the chalk in half, where is the essence of the chalk? I'm like, holy shit, what's chalk? Wait, what is the thing? And I was hooked, you know, like, I, like and I, I read the thing, I read the thing, I read the book, I couldn't understand it. I mean, I didn't have the background to understand it. There are, there are whole chapters on like Immanuel Kant and, you know, the categorical imperative and all this stuff that I had not studied so it's like i know this these words and i know the sentences are grammatically correct but why don't i understand them? you know part of what's interesting about this story is it reminds me of nothing so much as a you know as a good friend of mine who was a, a kind of mentor figure to me when i was in high school He's somebody who would, you know, refer, you know, to 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 elements of Ugaritic or Farsi, and you would ask him a question like, "How many languages do you speak?" And he would say like one at a time. You know, he'd give you, you know, answers yeah. like that. So I was like, well, "How did you get on this road?" I remember mm-hmm. asking him as a freshman or or something in high school, and he said. I was at a parade, you know, when I was in when I was eight or nine years old, and there was a, a a group of Jews from our neighborhood who came marching, and they had a sign, they had a banner in Hebrew, and I couldn't understand what the banner said, and yeah. I wanted to know what the banner said, and so as soon as I could, I started teaching myself Hebrew, or he did it with an elder in the neighbor. I don't know, but it'd be like he. But it was that challenge to him. Here's 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 something that I want access to. You know, I feel like it could be available, but it's not available yet. But it's tempting, and I want in. Yeah, and that launched yeah. him. That launched him on this whole thing. So whether Heidegger is the first philosopher one should encounter or not in a given curriculum, such as you might design now, it's interesting yeah. to think like it felt like a challenge. Yeah. And I guess, you know, the advantage I had was that I was so ignorant of all of it that I didn't realize how difficult, you know, like I just like, okay. Uh, So it was like little 
moments of, oh, I get this idea. And somewhere in there, I remember, like anyone who's read anybody, you know, theoretical, will have had this kind of moment where you're, you're reading something and you think like, oh, wait, I've had this idea. I This idea is true, but I just didn't say it as clearly as this person is now saying. So it was just, now it was just like candy to a baby for me. I couldn't get enough, you know. <laughs> um, the, but the other thing with the poetry connection just uh, is, and I do still tell my students this to this day, poetry and philosophy, I believe should both be read very slowly and it, working in good faith on the idea that there's nothing on the page that's not there for a good reason. And that's how slowly, if, if, you, if you get to a sentence or a statement and you don't know why it's there, then slow down and stop and try to figure out why it's there before you just keep going. So I, you know, I tell my students like, look, I'm assigning you 50 pages to read by, you know, next Tuesday. But if you can get through two pages really well, that's better than reading all 50 and not knowing what, what just happened, you know what I mean? And I think poetry is the same way. Before he was Professor Lacey, Duane was an undergraduate in September 2001, studying at the New School in New York City. There he witnessed firsthand the attack on the World Trade Center because it had a deep influence on his eventual decision to teach in the Middle East and Central Asia, I asked him what he'd be willing to document about his experience of 9-11. I've edited it, but this segment still features some graphic detail, so I will say that it lasts about 11 minutes if you're not in a place to hear it right now and would like to skip ahead. Duane was at this moment working a range of odd jobs to pay for school and living expenses. Technically, I had no business being in the vicinity of the World Trade Center. Like, I was an undergraduate at the new school. I'm not going to say I was homeless, but I was sleeping in an elevator at one, actually one of the university dormitories called the Marlton House, which is on A Street between 5th and 6th Avenue. The, the guy at the Marlton House, he's like, okay, so you can spend the night in the elevator and then at around 6 a.m. or so, go downtown. There are, I don't know, four or five buildings. He's like, I, I have an agreement with the owners. You just need to sweep all the steps in the building and clean the elevators, clean basically just custodial work in the building. And that's what I was doing when the first plane hit. Uh, I didn't see the first plane. I was in the basement. I was about, I don't, uh, I don't really remember the exact 
location because there, we were working on different buildings. I guess I, I want to say Warren Street, which is about four blocks away from the trade center. So I, I remember I was in the basement and all of a sudden there was just this boom. And the ground shook. The noise was intense. And I, in my brain, I was like, a bomb, a bomb just went off. You know, that was the first instinct or whatever. So I, I ran up the steps of the building and went outside. And I, you know, I, uh, you could see the trade center and there's this fiery hole. And I guess, um, you know, it's very difficult to, when you, when you deal with like perspective and proportion, the trade center tall and far away, you know? So that hole looked kind of minor relative to the whole building and, um, but, you know, it was actually, a, you know, to, ease, to see it at all meant it's a massive hole, right, uh, with flames and smoke. And so there were two guys who only spoke Spanish. They were, they were doing scaffolding on the building that, that, uh, that I was uh, working in. And they said, plane, plane, you know. I'm kind of freaking out. I was like, a plane just hit the trade center? We didn't know, like, at that moment, we didn't know what kind of plane. Maybe it was just someone, you know, you know, we didn't know it was a massive commercial, you know, American air. We didn't know. Dwayne was working with a man several decades his senior named Roland. And then Roland, you know, he casually looks at me. We're looking up at this gaping horror in the first tower that was hit. And he just looks at me, he's like, you want to go get some breakfast? So Roland's idea was like, this would be a good time to get a cup of coffee and an egg sandwich. So I walk with Roland to actually kind of closer, I guess. And then he's inside ordering us our, our breakfast. And that's when the second plane came. And that was, for me, that's, you know, the life changer. Like, I, it came over my head. The speed, the noise, the speed of that plane was no, like, I've seen, obviously, I've seen the footage that we've all seen of that second plane, because nobody was watching. So we don't really have much footage of the first plane. But we've got all the footage of the second plane hitting. You know, I guess the camera, the camera angles or whatever, they're so far away. That it looks slow. Um, you know, when we see the news footage of the second plane, it looks kind of slow. It was not slow. I mean, you know, imagine a a, a commercial airliner basically at full tilt, flying so close to the ground. I mean, that you know, hundreds of miles per hour. It, it's just the speed was 
uh, intense. And so, and then smash, it hits. And immediately everyone on the sidewalk where I was just ran away, just ran away, dropping shit, you know, dropping dismins, tripping over baby strollers. And, and I'm not an engineer or anything close. I do remember just that plane over my head, the proximity of it, the speed of it, the sound of it, the, the, it shook the ground. And the impact, my immediate thought was that building is going to fall down. Like, that's what I thought. Like, there's no way it could not fall. So whether or not there was, you know, other things going on, I don't know, but I'm just saying as a bystander, my thought was there's no way anything could survive that kind of impact. It was just that intense. And I mean, I guess for all of us, that was the moment when we were like, oh, wait a second. Plane number one was no accident. This, this is now a completely different narrative. So Roland comes out, uh, he's got our coffee and shit. And I'm like, dude, what do we do? But here's where, you know, it's such a classic like New York thing. So old man Roland, I, I said to Roland, I was like, should we get back on the subway? He's like, no. And I was like, well, he's like, no, we got to walk. So the Martin house is on A Street. So we were down. So it's a pretty long walk uh, to get back to the Martin house. Uh, but he said, he said, I worked on the, that's why I mean, typical New York, you know, you never know who you, he's like, I worked on the, the steel for that building. And he said, and it's riddled with gas bubbles. He's like, it's, it's going to burn and burn and it's probably going to fall down. He's like, we don't want to be on that subway line. So Roland, maybe Roland saved my life because I probably would have gotten on the subway and gotten trapped. Uh, but he's like, let's just walk. So we walked back. Took us, I don't know how long. The guy you were with had worked on the construction of the towers? Yeah. Yeah, he was that old. So then I, I got to a pay phone. I tried to call my parents to let them know I was okay. But the you couldn't dial out of the city at that point. Um, and I didn't own a cell phone anyway, but we, it wouldn't work if I had. Had I stayed in the where I was when that collapse had happened, then, you know, I don't, I definitely was in the, the radius uh, huh. had I stayed there. So I, you know, the sheer scale of it, though, like, uh, I mean, you want to help. I I was a little angry at the people who just ran away, but it's not like I ran toward the building. And the sheer scale of it is like, I cannot do anything, you know, and, and the police and the ambulances and the fire trucks started rolling in and, you know, New York's finest. I was just thinking like, man, I do not envy, I'm not envy what they're about to 
try and deal with i don't know if the uh news footage covers that but it was actually quite noticeable that you know after the planes had hit one of the things that was just coming issuing and issuing out of the the holes in the building was paper you know like just re like just covering the sky you know paper and pigeons kind of switching about <laughs> all this paperwork that mean, no longer means anything right and then amidst all that there are these other things coming out and you don't you didn't realize it at first and you're like oh shit that's those are people you know and what uh, what choice i mean they it's either burn to death or jump you know and so, so i mean i didn't help anyone i didn't run but i didn't help anyone slowly made my way towards safety and then i thought uh, what can i do But then, yeah, 9-11, and all of a sudden, it's like, what's the Taliban? Who's Osama bin Laden? What's, like, to me, Islam was just another religion, you know? Uh, I didn't, I didn't care. <laughs> you know, it wasn't significant. So, now, I guess, me, like so many people, my age and, and otherwise it was like uh, we were shocked into all of a sudden feeling like we should know about the rest of the world maybe yeah because this is the thing again you lived all these years um but to look at this as a 20 you know and of course we just got back in touch recently but if you if you excise two decades, you know, from this yeah. story, you go from living through 9-11-01 yeah. to being 20 years later in a 90% Muslim demographic country. Yeah. That's, that's where you've been working now for the past, what, eight years? Is that right? Yeah. I've been in Kyrgyzstan, yeah, just, just about eight seven or eight years and i was in the uae for about five years oh, yes yeah i mean that's fascinating gnawing at me was maybe you should you know me talking myself it was like maybe i should not just be you know some professor working on obscure shit, trying to pump, like, maybe I should try and do a little bit more. Um, so that's when I thought, 
all right, well, I'm getting a PhD. I hadn't finished yet, so, but that's when I started thinking, like, maybe I'll go into the military. Maybe I'll go work for a government agency. You know, maybe I should do that. Maybe I could put my analytic logic and theory skills into a practical application. For myself, I needed to see up close, firsthand, up and personal. I needed to understand what an Islamic culture really meant. I needed to hear the call to prayer, not in a movie, but like outside my window. I needed to know, like, because I knew all the sense, I knew how angry I was at Islam. I knew how angry other people were at Islam and all, you know, and then, and then invading Iraq and that whole, and George Bush, you know. All of that, you know, that we that we lived through. Like, I was like, okay, I'm not a fan of this. I'm not a fan of any religion, period. But I just felt like I cannot, I cannot criticize that which I do not really understand. You know, no matter how easy it is, and in the environment that we were living in post 9/11. It's easy to criticize Islam, easy as can be, and no one's gonna, you know, get upset. You're gonna get all the support you want. So I went to the Middle East, <laughs> and I've learned what an Islamic culture is like. But at least now I can be critical with some firsthand knowledge of what I'm actually talking about. You know, I'm not just I'm not just making it up or listening to some talking head on, you know, some news channel and or whatever. And I know that, yeah, uh, you know, obviously some of the the fundamentalist aspects are really hard uh, to contend with, especially when they affect the lives of these students that you have come to care about. Uh, but you know, before we go there a little bit, is there something that you've come to appreciate as? Um, I don't know, valuable, uh, admirable about an Islamic culture, about the people, you know, that you have met in the Islamic culture. Because, again, I don't, I don't know how once you're living in it, um, you know, you can separate the people that you're having like like daily life yeah. with, sharing daily life with, and then saying, well, this is the culture. I don't know how you, I mean, it seems like a kind of difficult yeah. exercise. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think, uh, and for any of the people listening uh, to this podcast, one of the things that I've come to realize, not just in Islamic cultures, but like in Georgia, for example, in the Republic of Georgia, which, what's the predominant religion there? Well, it's mostly Orthodox Christianity. One thing is the value of the guest. Right, the value of the stranger. The, in the United States, you know, in America, we have the that phrase, you know, Southern hospitality. It's it feels like that, but the deep seated, and I, I guess it's you know biblical, if not older, but 
deep-seated in a lot of the cultures that I've had the, the uh, opportunity and fortune to, to uh, experience. And it is this, this hospitality, this idea that, oh, you're, you're a guest here, which means we have to give you food. We have to be nice to you. Like it's like, compare that to New York. The friendliness to a complete stranger is something that surprised me time and time again. And I'm not saying, on the other hand, Peter, that countries are not getting more nationalistic in a very frustrating, frightened way. I believe they are. The, the, other, thing I did, the other thing I did want to say, though, really quickly, just is that there is a deep respect for books in the Islamic culture. And not just like Arabs or, or whatever people think when they think Islamic culture, but Southeast Asian Muslim, like there's a, like if a, like a, a, if there's a book on, on the floor, you do not step over the book. It's, it's what we would call haram. It's haram is an Arabic term meaning forbidden. Like, and if you're carrying the Quran, it should be wrapped up. You shouldn't touch it with unwashed hands. So it's a little maybe excessive, but I like that respect. It doesn't just, it's not just the Quran. It's like any book. I asked Dwayne if there was any particular mission that drove his teaching of Western philosophy in predominantly Muslim countries. There was a period of time when I felt I had some kind of uh, life-changing insights to, you know, like I was, I was coming into a conservative environment, you know, I'm going to shatter the glass, shatter all of it, just, you know, break it up. And, you know, it, you know. That's how I felt rolling into Westfield, New Jersey, baby. That's right, yeah. That's, that's young teacher stuff, you know? That's right, exactly. So, well, I guess my, uh, right now at least, my feeling is um, I know, I know, I'm more familiar with what I know than I know. <laughs> I guess it's sort of a weird way of saying like, yeah, can. Uh, like the, the best thing I can do is be, that teacher who gets excited at everything Socrates says, and you know, I like, like I, I know that sounds maybe corny or cheesy or whatever, but it's like I, I do think, and I'm sure you, you've had this experience too. Like when a teacher loves yes. what he or she is teaching, that translates to the students for the most part, and. So for me, it's, it's, uh, it's become more of just, I just need to be better at what I'm already supposed to be better at. And I'm supposed to love what I already love. Um, 
and I need to take care to, you know, to be aware of where I am and who I'm talking to in that care. What I mean is break down the differences, the cultural differences or whatever between us and create a classroom where, Hey, we're, we're all going to have a headache by the end of this conversation because there's weird shit is going to like, what is chalk? I don't know. But now I can tell you why I don't know what chalk is. That's the difference. Like asking the question is one thing, but being able to explain why you don't know the answer. Hey, job done. <laughs> Lesson learned. Headache acquired. Go on about your day. Go be a business major. But I just had you for an hour of philosophy and you have a headache and, and you know, you don't know what chalk is. Yay. <laughs> so like, I want that experience. And so I'm just trying to be better at that. I wanted to know about major differences between the two predominantly Muslim cultures Duane has worked in, the United Arab Emirates, or UAE, and now Kyrgyzstan. When I moved here from the UAE, um, you know, in the UAE, the males, the male students are taught on one campus and the female students are taught on a different campus. They are not integrated. So I, I went from five years of that, and then I came here. Uh, and one of the first things I see in the hallway of the university here is two, you know, kids making out on a couch in the hallway. And I was like, oh, thank God. I was like, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. it's like, this feels better to me. <laughs> so... Uh, and it's like I think I mentioned to you when we were talking previously, you know, the, the guys are in, in the UAE, at least, you know, the guys are dressed like Bedouin guys. Um, and the girls are dressed like Bedouin women. Here, you know, it's more like jeans and T-shirts and, you know, stuff like that. So that's why I say the, the religion is, it's there, but it's less predominant. Um, and so when I'm teaching philosophy, either there or here, I guess there's, there's always that moment, you know what I'm talking about, Peter, like the aha moment, you know, when sure. the student has like, oh, you know, like, yeah. I don't know why I'm here. Why am I talking about chalk? But, or like, you know, I ask, you know, in my math class, we often talk with like, I'll say something like, okay, can you all please imagine the number five? They're like, yeah. Um, I was like, well, okay. Have you ever seen the number five? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then I begin like, you've never seen the number five. You never will. You never have. But it's real. <laughs> And then, then I go a little further. I say, have you ever, st everybody knows what a circle is, right? Like, yeah, yeah, I know the circle. It's like, have you ever seen a circle? It's like, yeah, yeah, I've seen the circle. And then I say, no, you never have, and you never will. <laughs> it's a two-dimensional object, my friends. 
it's a concept and hence Plato. And here we go. <laughs> right. Mm. <laughs> um, so what's the ontological status of the number five? And, and, you know, at the, at those moments, nobody, nobody cares whether Muhammad said this or, or Muhammad said that, or, you know, Jesus said this, or Moses said, I mean, it's like, shit, well, I thought I knew what a circle was. Now you're telling me I never saw one. Those are the moments I kind of live for in teaching. And, and that, that shit happens no matter what culture you're in. You just, you know, if they just give you a moment to ask that question. And I mean, ask anyone, have you seen a circle? They're going to say yes. <laughs> you know? And then you're like, no, you haven't. <laughs> and then they're like, wait, <laughs> that's what, that's the world I live in. <laughs> Fariel Hariri was born in Kabul, Afghanistan, at the height of the Taliban's initial rule between 1996 and 2001. She attended school through 12th grade in Afghanistan, after which she pursued her studies at the American University of Central Asia in Kyrgyzstan, where she earned a BA in psychology and a master's degree in sociology. AUCA is also where she met Duane as her professor for Introduction to Philosophy, and I am very grateful to him for introducing Farial to me. She and I spoke the night of September 13th, Buffalo time, which was the morning of September 14th in Bishkek, Kyrgyzstan. On my end, a severe storm rolled in just as Farial and I began to talk. I've done my best to suppress the thunderclaps, but you may detect some in the distance. I mention the date because things change so rapidly. Farial refers several times to the courageous resistance being waged in Panjshir, one of the 34 provinces of Afghanistan. As of today, it's very hard to know what's going on. In late August, as the battles were heating up, the Taliban disabled internet and mobile phone services in the province, effectively cutting off the residents not only from the rest of the country and the world, but also from themselves. So my first question is, how are you this morning? Well, I wake up every day with um, looking at my social medias and looking all those women in the street protesting and thinking if I was in Afghanistan, I would have done the same thing. But <clears throat> also looking at the women getting lashed and whipped by Taliban. And then, um, and then seeing men, like men around her, just looking at the scene and not doing anything. While it's just like one person one Talib, like they could just get their gun, beat him or do something because um, their population is more than Taliban. But like no one is doing anything. And this is so heartbreaking. Just recently, my, I, um, my friend um, texted me that our friend um, who graduated from the same university as I 
was abducted and her whole family was abducted because she was um well she graduated from an American university and um that was unbelievable like <laughs> and they're still in the jail by Taliban and I don't know for what reason like their justification is maybe because she studied here in um a westernized culture i feel so sad that we are considered as the infidels now to taliban because we went abroad we struggled um our way to get to getting education we didn't give up we didn't sit at home and um do ha- uh, domestic um, house chores we wanted to get financially independent and the only way to do that was to get education and this is sad for all those women who are now educated um like it's not a, it's not an easy journey for any afghan women to go to school from from the beginning like from going to school to university and then now they're jobless they cannot work they cannot do anything so like what was all those education for then it was for nothing to go back to this question when you say that you know it seemed like there is one talib um you know uh, in a given situation you know committing a horrible act mm-hmm. How is it that he could not be overpowered? I think this is one of the things that a lot of people wonder when they're looking at this situation to say like, you know, Afghanistan had, you know, thousands of troops who, who, seemed, who seemed to well outnumber mm-hmm. the Taliban's <coughs> forces, mm-hmm. the numbers. These troops had been trained by, you know, US forces and, 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 and other allies. They seemed to be well equipped you know, some people, you know, wonder how, how was it, mm-hmm. you know, how do you think it was that the Taliban was able to take over so quickly? Of course, they had been in control, you know, two decades ago mm-hmm. for a period of six or seven years. But how was it that they were able to resurge so quickly? Was it purely fear of the Taliban or was there something else at work? I think it was the government itself. Um it was not well aware and no one was expecting this even the afghan government and uh, plus they did not support um all those troops in other provinces like when it started from uh the um, from other provinces like for example herat um we lost herat in just like few days and then people started to fight back and there were like civilians involved um but we heard that the government did not help them at all while they asked for like so much help and um the, the government did not respond anything and uh, they did not send any weapon they fought all by themselves like um what's happening right now in panchir um uh, are you uh, well aware of um 
how the resistance group is uh, fighting against Taliban and Panjshir. I'm aware that they have been making a strong effort, yes. Yes, they are. And those weapons are not, not supported by the government at all, unfortunately. Like, maybe it is, maybe I'm not well aware of, but as I have heard, uh, they were the weapons that they restored all this time to, um, for like, for just like this day that it might uh, come, like just as, um, how can I say, um, just so that they're prepared if anything happens in, in Panjshir. And now they're using those um they're like very young students who are not trained um they have lost their lives um and they're still fighting others yeah but they seem to be like putting a lot of effort but like taliban are doing mass killing going door by door killing beheading children killing women and men I've seen horrible videos in social media of Taliban killing people who, who are from Panjshir. I just recently saw, watched a video of um, like people from Panjshir getting abducted by Taliban, and it's it's unbelievable. It's it's terrifying to see all those things, but. Um, yeah, the government of Afghanistan did not was not well aware and was very weak. They could have fought, but they did not support the troops in other provinces of Afghanistan. Um, maybe it was the fear, or maybe they were not ready. But. Um, now all those weapons are left for Taliban. So now the government do not have any kind of weapon except those people who are fighting in the resistance group right now in Panjshir. And I'm not sure if it's enough. They don't have enough food. They don't have enough anything there. They don't have electricity. Everything is cut off by the Taliban. And they do not let any kind of... Um, humanitarian aid to get inside Panjshir. They have blocked all the ways. Yeah, but they're... And, and just to be clear, mm -hmm. when you... I'm sorry, just to be clear, when you say the government, you're talking about the former democratic, you know, government yes, that was in yes, place for former. 20 years, not not, <laughs> no. not, the, not the current, yeah. you know, government that was <laughs> I just... I should get used to saying the former government. <laughs> well, I'm so sorry that you need to, because, of course, there's no... Um, you know, op opposing religious minorities. There's, of course, no women. You know, there's no anybody but the Taliban. And it seems like many people who were there 20 years ago just older. Mm -hmm. um, this is this is one of the things that, you know, for me as an educator, my understanding is that the word Taliban, um, you know, actually comes from Arabic talib, meaning student. Yeah. Is that is that is that right? You know that that the, the and reflecting the fact that the the you know the group was started by Pakistani religious school students in the mid nineteen nineties. But yeah, as an educator, <laughs> I I struggle with the irony Understand. of this term it's because it doesn't ironic. appear to me that anybody's 
Well, yes, but anybody's no. Is that it, how do you think about it? Is it just my own, you know, liberal Western bias, mm -hmm. or you know, how do you think of the meaning of the word Taliban in 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 light of what these men do? Well, it's it's very ironic, as you said. Um, Taliban, yeah, it means students. Um, but it's, it, I, I don't understand, first of all, students of what? And second, students would respect other students. And they're not, they're not respecting anyone. They do, do not have any kind of respect for education. Um, so I don't really understand, first of all, like students of what? Um, if it's Sharia law, it's in a very... Um, extreme level and it's not even like it's not religion i know it's very political um yeah that is a very ironic term actually and the fact that they don't let other people to become students like real students like going to school getting education uh, or making it so difficult um Recently, I just watched um, a picture of of female and male students in a university um, that how it should be separated. And then uh, they did another demonstration of how women should dress up if they, if they go to universities. Um, and it, like this, that, that is not in our culture. I don't know how students would learn something behind those black veils like um that, that's horrible like what would happen in the summer it will be so hot how will they be able to study in their classroom oh my god there's so many things that um that like gets in my nerves when i see these things and i just don't know where's the logic in it it's just all they think about is women and imprisoning them somehow either with like clothes or with other things we should say that this, this is an audio interview so people can't see you but you do not um you know you do not wear the burqa um you you know you, you do not uh you know conform to, you know, uh, fundamentalist standards of dress. Mm -hmm. um, how do you think about the choice to, you know, you know, how to, how to dress, you know, what clothes to wear? Is there, what thinking goes into it for you? Mm -hmm. uh, well, I love our African culture dresses. It's very beautiful. It's very colorful. It's not black or like, um too depressing <laughs> um it has um well it has lots and lots of details and it's um sewn very carefully and with a lot of time and effort and um well yeah it's very beautiful and colorful i love it i cannot wear it every day because it's a little bit heavy but we always um wear or traditional uh, dresses in weddings or in like mm, um, events but i believe every woman should be given 
the right to dress how they want um even if it's not um it's not culturally appropriate <laughs> well my um personal opinion is a little bit different uh, i don't know what women in afghanistan would would think but um yeah like i don't wear a scarf and my parents do not have any kind of um problem with that um and they respect my choice so yeah this is how i am and i think i don't know even uh i don't think in islam it was um, maybe i'm not well aware um but hijab and like burqa that comes from um the the culture of arab people not islam and people confuses that there's so many ways that you could look um modest but not covered in like all over um with black burqas um and i think every woman should be given the right to choose whatever they want to wear I wanted to go to a, a, a kind of larger question because we first talked, to, you know, two weeks ago, uh, and I'm and I'm just asking, you know, and I know so much changes day by day, uh, but I'd kind of like to set the stage, especially for you know U.S. U.S. listeners, uh, to say that the you know the Watson Institute is an organization at Brown University, um, which is in Providence, Rhode Island here in the US. So that's an Institute for International Public Affairs. And they've reported that nearly a quarter of a million people, 241,000 people, have been killed in the Afghanistan and Pakistan war zones since 2001. Uh, more than 71,000 civilians. Um, they also cite a 2009 report from the Afghan Ministry of Public Health that at that time, at that time in 2009, fully two-thirds of Afghans were suffering from mental health problems as a result of the you know, conflict. That was 12 years ago. The human cost of this conflict has been horrific. However, um, you know, as you note, as you have experienced, there were also some advances in opportunities for women and girls in particular, as compared with life under the Taliban rule. Um, you've also said, you know, you've, you've shared your belief that the U U.S. should not have withdrawn from Afghanistan. I know that many things are in flux and so many things have happened so quickly. But how do you think about it right now? Uh, do you think it would, would it have been better for the U.S. never have to establish a presence in the country? Or how do you think about this question yeah, maybe it would have been um, better, but I don't know what would have happened to people of Afghanistan if the U.S. wouldn't have intervened at that time. But I don't understand one thing is um, um, 20 years of war by just like against Taliban to replace Taliban with Taliban 
it does not make any sense. It's just, it's going in the same direction, same, we're in a turning point. Um, we're going back like 20 years back. And this is sad. Do you think there's a, a benefit for what women, young women such as you, uh, you know, have experienced, have been able to experience so that you know, so that you're able to work towards, a, a, you know, a different Afghanistan? Personally, yes, I was giving a lot of opportunity, like after the fall of Taliban, I was able to go to school. Um, it was not easy. Um, or not as as not as my parents explain how they went to school um as uh, as a girl for example because at that time things were much easier for women um yeah but yeah i was giving a lot of opportunities and a uh, it was it was thanks to us because I came here, um, I got my bachelor's and master's degree. Um, yeah, if US wouldn't have um, invaded Afghanistan, we wouldn't have had those opportunities in the beginning. And I, I don't know what would have happened to the women of Afghanistan at that time. So what what now can you imagine you know you, you you've mentioned that you've gotten your degrees you've pursued a you've earned a ba in psychology a bachelor's degree in psychology a master's degree in sociology um and i know that you're planning further study and thinking about uh, you know international policy for example um mm -hmm. so as you think about the possible u.s role going forward or the role for for that matter of any other country that was involved in afghanistan um, what could a positive role be at this point? Um, yeah, like for other countries not to um, not to interfere. For example, Pakistan right now is supporting Taliban somehow. Um, and no one is talking about it. Like the news, the, the politicians, everyone is so silent. And Taliban somehow shows that they're actually fighting against Pakistan <laughs> and that's just to like make the fool people like um, how they did a few days ago with the um, uh, with the burqa a demonstration of how women should uh, wear burqa some of those women were not women at all they were Taliban actually <laughs> behind burqa so yeah they know their ways to fool people but um I was expecting more from UN uh, to do something, but um, I don't know. No, no one is doing anything. Especially right now, when I'm um, seeing the news and watching all those horrifying videos of people getting killed by Taliban and Panjshir, um, and they're starving to death. They don't have any doctors. Um, this is so sad. The line is now, as you may know, uh, among people, you know, in the in the United States mm -hmm. government. I'm talking about the, you know, the White House and and President Biden, saying, "Yes, we understand that that you know that women and girls are in danger uh, in Afghanistan, 
but we also understand that they're in danger throughout the world, and we want to uh, do the things that we can um, as a, a separate country, um, not an occupying force, to deploy mm -hmm. diplomatic means, to deploy you know, you know, humanitarian aid, for example, um, but not you know, not to continue a military presence, to, but, you know, to try to support women's rights, to try to support mm -hmm. all human rights, to try to do mm -hmm. that, but not, you know. Um, I wanted to see, you know, how that sits with you. Does that, you know, does that make sense? Does that seem reasonable? Is there something more specific uh, that you would like to see as far as a role, you know, especially given the U.S. presence over the past two decades? Uh, for the U.S. to play now? Um, but personally, I wanted to go to Afghanistan um, this year to find a job there and work there because um, I wanted to work for women in Afghanistan. Um, yeah. And I'm pretty sure like my friends who graduated from here, they all went back to Afghanistan to work there while they had opportunities to leave and go abroad and study or do an internship or seek asylum in Europe or US, but they didn't, they decided to go back. So, um, and the ones that I know, they were they had to evacuate Afghanistan um, not because they wanted to, because they were forced to um, yeah, I do believe there they were um, students who wanted to stay in Afghanistan and uh, work there um, I mean, I really appreciate US um, thinking of other ways to help Afghan women. Um, but if Afghanistan was a better place, we didn't have to face this in, uh, like in the beginning at all as, as women. Why we need to get displaced, why we need to flee our country and not making it a better place like so many um, people have been saying that and which is true but um but yeah i understand us again not um uh, getting exhausted of supporting afghanistan and um like military wise we spoke a little bit about when we talked a couple of weeks ago about your um, experience in uh, school that mm -hmm. you said that uh, you know and unfortunately the audio was not great on that conversation you said that your uh, you know your parents were very your family was very supportive of your going to school uh, but that you had to go through hell every day to attend um, you know high school for example fearing the risk of suicide bombers mm -hmm. and that it was a great relief to come to the american university of central asia because you you didn't have that fear anymore um yes 
<clears throat> I wanted. I just wanted to ask if there was anything else that you you know wanted to share about your experience um, as somebody who had to fight for uh, you know an education, had to be especially um, mindful of it. Well, I just remembered a particular um, incident. Well, the fear did not only come from. Uh, you know, getting targeted by Taliban either in a, a bomb blast on our way to school or like mines that were mm, um, that were installed in like um, close to the roads or close on uh, close to our ways. Whenever we would pass by a uh, uh, a U.S. military vehicle, uh, we should had this distance from them um, and they had this stop sign like red um, hand that uh, do not um, come closer than this like particular distance and uh, one day when we were coming back from uh, school and we were in um, our transportation in our car um, a school van and um, I was, I don't know, 14 or 15 and um, I was told that sometimes the US uh, military, I mean the, the soldiers sometimes they shoot civilians if they get very close to them. I mean I was very afraid of um, that happening to me one day and um, on this day I um, our driver was like the the soldier I remember in the vehicle was shouting on our driver that do not come closer but I don't know he was going a little bit fast and I end up screaming in the car because I thought he's gonna shoot like any soon <laughs> as a teenager as a like I don't know why did I go through that yeah the other students were laughing at me because they thought it was so stupid uh, they thought that I shouldn't fear or that they wouldn't shoot but uh, they looked very serious and then I remember how um, in the beginning I was treated when the US military invaded Afghanistan in 2001 I was passing by a street and I was so so excited to see them uh, passing by the street because they would sometimes throw sweets um, on us or just like um, blow kisses from very far distance. And uh, I, yeah, I was very excited to go to school uh, uh, when I was like five, four. Uh, I remember I would go with my mom and then I would be so excited to see them passing the streets <laughs> and most of the times they would like wave. I had both like the, the sweet um, memories and then the the part where I was afraid that they were they're gonna shoot me but I do understand that it was I mean it was their policy they had to do whatever to um, to protect their lives um, but I wish that did not happen to civilians. I wish that civilians were not involved. But um, it's hard to avoid that, and I understand. 
but it, yeah, the the fear uh, of death was not only coming from Taliban. So, like most of the times, I was afraid of um, uh, military, uh, U.S. military vehicles to get on our way, more than like being afraid of Taliban because most of the times at that time like something would happen a bomb would blast or mm, yeah because they were targeted uh, the, the US military it must have been a it must have been a strange transition because of course you had had you know, very negative experiences. You you, you told a story about, um, you know, a, 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 a Talib assaulting your mother uh, when you were very young. This must have been just about the time or just before, perhaps, uh, the U.S., you know, came into Afghanistan. And so, of course, the, you, you, you knew that there was the threat of uh, of physical violence from the, from the Taliban, that they were very powerful. But then, of course, you shift over and then there is this you know u.s military um and they that also comes with some threat um of, mm-hmm. of violence it must have been a very different you know difficult and disorienting well, uh, childhood not in the beginning yeah. yeah yeah not in the beginning because in the beginning they were nice towards children but then I heard like stories where they have shooted like even little children because they thought those children were a threat, and it might be true to some extent and not true to another. But like we don't know for sure. So the, I yeah after that I had that fear. But in the beginning it, I was so excited. <laughs> I would go to school happily to see them. And I still remember, like, they were all bald. And um, <laughs> and I thought, like, all the Americans look like that. <laughs> but, yeah. Wait, I'm, I'm sorry. All the Americans looked just bald or they looked like something else? Yeah, I yeah, lost? yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. All bald. I, yeah, bald. <laughs> okay. But in a, like, it, was a, it was a good thing for me. I don't know. I liked it. <laughs> Can I ask if when you were in high school was there a moment that you decided i want to continue you know i want to learn more i definitely want to go to college to university to learn more was there was there something about it or was it just that you could um or was there for example i'm interested if there was maybe an idea or a field of study that got you like fired up that's i mean i know you did your bachelor's in psychology but i don't know if you decided that you wanted to do that before you went to university was there something that 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 made you say like i want to go to college Mm -hmm. yeah the drive for education came from like my my parents first of all they wanted me to have a degree uh, because everyone in our family has a bachelor's degree uh, and also my uh, and a master's degree as well. So, yeah, like after high school, 
I should have thought about like what I want to study, but I specifically did not know psychology. But of course, like continuing my education was a must. And it didn't only come from the family, it's just the uh I mean students who just um I mean, men and women who just graduate from the twelfth grade in um, Afghanistan are not well respected by the society and also given not given the opportunity to work. So I would have had less um, opportunity to work, um, and I, maybe I would have uh, been less respected by people around me. Because people of Afghanistan really did do respect education and all those people who... Um, it, it does not matter if you're a woman. But they would criticize all the time. Like going abroad as a woman is not a good thing for any um, Afghan. I mean, maybe some... Um, families they do allow that but with a lot of struggles and difficulties like my friends um, had a lot of difficulties um, convincing their parents to give them permission to study here but apart from that the people are supportive um, of education <laughs> Everyone wants to become engineer or doctor. <laughs> I remember that. That's in my notes. Yeah. The, the, the jobs and the money. We get a lot of that in the mm -hmm. U.S. as well. Um, <laughs> very last thing, uh, you, you know, you, you noted uh, your sincere hope that um, when, we, when we spoke before, you said, I hope that Afghanistan is not just a trend right now. Um, that the media will figure out a way to continue to cover Afghanistan. And I've been listening, you know, uh, to reports about the many journalists who have had to flee the country, um, who have decided to flee the country, of, you know, for their, for their lives, for the threats on their lives. Um, and you are very much hoping that the world will not forget about Afghanistan. Uh, is there anything else that you would like for uh, people to be thinking about? Or is there any way that you have, that you would recommend for us to continue to learn about what's happening in Afghanistan? Because, again, news is not easy to come by. Yeah, it's just for people to know that for Afghan women specifically, Afghanistan will not ever become a place to live. For those who think like mm, Biden's decision was so right, maybe it was right and yeah, I, I know that it was not all his decision. It was decided before by other pres former presidents as well. But I just think the way it was done was not right. They have lost a lot of people and uh, Afghans lost a lot of lives as well. Um, so I wish that um, that could have been done more thoughtfully and more strategically. But yeah, I want the world to know that um, Afghan women are fighting right now. 
against Taliban. They're protesting in the streets while um, others are just watching. And uh, they're making history. They're putting their lives in danger. Yeah, I, I cannot imagine. I would have done the same thing, I think, if I was in Afghanistan. I would have been as uh, as angry as they are. Yeah, I would like the world to always remember Afghan women and support Afghan women as much as they can because Afghanistan is not a place anymore for them to live. And it looks, the situation right now looks very hopeless. I don't know if things will get better in Afghanistan. So for Afghan women, it's going to get even worse. Yeah, I want the world to remember Afghan women as these rebellious, defiant women who would fight for their lives, um, who would risk their lives fighting for their rights and not uh, being afraid of like any kind of threat. Uh, I'm sure you have watched those pictures where Taliban have pointed um, their guns towards a woman and she's just looking at him back very angrily. Uh, that's how far they can go to have their rights back. And like most of them also say that they're not doing this to to be able to work in the in the government or work in a high rank position in, in the government. Uh, they're doing it because they don't have freedom for themselves. Nothing is according to our culture, to what, to what we were raised, or what we were taught. What we were taught was right, like uh, according to our culture, like the way our we dress, the way we like play music. That that that's all banned, and yeah. It, Nothing, nothing look, looks um, like Afghan anymore. <laughs> I don't know who, who they are, honestly. Yeah, people are more worried about losing a sense of uh, a big part of their identity, starting from the flag, and then these dress, uh, dress codes and not being able to play music or sing and that's a huge part of our culture and it's so sad that it's been taken away from us yeah but yeah I want the world to know that um, that's not uh, what Afghans want I mean men do not want it as well but they, somehow they don't have the courage to take some like serious steps or to talk about it yeah, but only those who are fighting in Panjshir are really courageous. They are risking so much. And there are people who are not trained to fight, but they're doing whatever they can to protect their lands. And they're also fighting for Afghan women's rights, as they have, uh, as they have told us. So yeah, I hope that will end well for Afghans. That's it for today's show. 
My great thanks to Dwayne Lacey and Fadi Al-Haideri for joining me. And thanks to you for listening, sharing, rating, and reviewing Point of Learning. If you were looking for another reason to support this show, I will be donating all Patreon contributions for the month of October to help Afghan men, women, and children relocating to Buffalo. If you join by September 30th, you will help support that. Details on the show page. Of course, you're also encouraged to donate directly to organizations supporting Afghans. The show page will also feature a list of reputable organizations, as well as a link to the episode of the Entitled Podcast out of the University of Chicago Law School that featured Fadial last month. Special thanks to Sluggy, a Denver-based artist who accepted my challenge of remixing some traditional and not-so-traditional Kyrgyz music for today's soundtrack. I'd also like to give a shout-out to Jen Starrett for putting Dwayne and me back in touch. Point of Learning is written, recorded, edited, and mixed by me here in sunny Buffalo, New York. I'm Peter Horn, and I'll be back at you in a few weeks with artist and photography professor John Opera. See you then. Yeah, you, you, so you you talked about uh, you you talked about chalk. Hmm. Um, That's your takeaway. <laughs> yeah, yeah.